Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 263. We're literally in the week that leads right into Shavuos. This coming Shabbos will be Parshas Bamidbar. And going straight from Parshas Bamidbar into Sunday, Monday, the two days of Shavuos. So let us begin, as we always do, with something significantly connected to this period in time. So what's the connection between Bamidbar and Shavuos? It's pretty obvious. Is the third book of the fourth book of the Torah begins Bamidbar Sinai, and of course Bamidbar Sinai was Har Sinai. Mount Sinai with Martin Torah was what happened, happened, and the Torah was given to the Eden. This historical event took place in the Sinai Desert. So, of course, the question is asked, why of all places did Hashem choose to give the Torah in a desert? If you were to give someone a special gift, a very special gift, where would you choose a location? You would go to a place, a beautiful place, a beautiful ambiance, comfortable, and present a gift. There are many cities Hashem could have chosen, starting from Yerushalayim, not in Israel, there are other cities. Here he took them into an arid Midbar Shmama, an arid desert, at a sea of Oyev, a place that has no water, it's not a place of civilization. Lo Yoshev Adam Sham, it's not a place where human beings dwell. Nochesh Sarav Akriv, as the Pasuk says, there's snakes and scorpions, it's dangerous even. And that's where he gave them what? Chem de Gnuza, the concealed, the hidden treasure. The greatest treasure ever given to the human race was Teda. And where did he give it to Abraham? He chose the Midbar Sinai. So the Medrash gives different reasons for it. One very basic and beautiful reason, because the Abraham wanted to make sure that nobody lays claim to the Teda. Someone will say, if you give it to a certain city, the people living in that city will say, hey, you have to pay us royalties every time you learn Teda. He gave it in a no man's land, in language of halacha, mokim hefker. You lose something in the wilderness, nobody says, says it's mine because it's not their property. It's not a place where people live. So he gave the Tate dafke, specifically in a place that everybody has access to it forever and ever. In another place it says, why in a midbar? Because we have to be like a midbar when we receive the Tate. We have to empty ourselves and not be filled with our own civilized and sophisticated tools, but to be empty like a midbar. In Lukut the Alter Rebbe says, Lo Yoshev Odom Sham can be interpreted two ways. It could be a place that human beings don't dwell because it's beneath human civilization, or it could be because it's beyond human civilization. It transcends Odom. And as such, it offers ability to reach places that are beyond the structure. And one is rooted in the other. So there's a midbar which is a negative midbar, a midbar ra. You're saying the umazah, midbar of the umazah, the negative, which is referring to a place that's below civilization. And then there's a place, a midbar, layoshavodim, it's higher than. It doesn't have any shape and form as a structured city would have. And that's what happened when Matan took place. It wasn't just the giving of a book even of a mandate, but of a blueprint for life, a blueprint of existence. 
The Tater is God's blueprint. The Tater precedes existence because it's the blueprint. And it's where God invests and infuses his whole personality, so to speak, in the Tater. What's the first word of the Ten Commandments said by Matan Tater? Anoichi. Hashem Alekech Anoichi. The Gemara in Shabbos says, is an acronym. I have infused, instilled, transcribed my soul in these words. So the Tata captures the divine soul and the divine spirit. And that is beyond human structures. And that's why it's given in Amidbar. And when we go beyond our structure and out of our comfort zones and our structured identities, we become a Kali. My spirit is meaning it's like dust before everybody. It's not defined with all kinds of sophistication, and that opens you up. Open my heart. So the lesson of this is a very powerful lesson because when you really want truth, it's not about you, it's about a higher truth. And to get it, receive a higher truth, you have to absorb it. You have to divest yourself. You have to free yourself, strip yourself, suspend all your sophistication, all your tools to receive something greater than you are. And that's the, the, the key element of Matan Teda. And that's why Moshe Kibbal Teda is Sinai. So the question is asked, Moshe Kibbal Teda Hashem. Moshe received the Torah from God, not from Sinai. He received it on Sinai. But Sinai learned from Sinai. He received the Torah in the way Sinai was. It was a mountain, but it was the smallest mountain of all mountains. So you have to feel proud. A certain proud. You're not, you're not a scoop on addresses, which means a doormat. There's a pride. There's a confidence. But it's the lowest. The shortest. The lowest of all mountains. And Moshe learned from Sinai that on one hand you have to have that intensity, that confidence, but you have to also know you're the smallest because you're an onov, you're humble, and therefore you become a container to channel the greatest. You have to be like a midbar and like offer. Everybody steps on it, but not steps in a way that, they, that you allow yourself to be in any way demoralized, but rather that you don't take yourself that seriously and you suspend yourself. Chochmah, you're not silas, is bitl, koyach ma. It allows itself to absorb and to experience something greater than itself. Bina says, which is a yesh in Seichel itself, I understand. Chachma says, the idea is being understood. Chachma says, I grasp, the idea grasps, the idea grasps me. Bina says, I grasp the idea. And Ksidis elaborates at length of the difference between the two. And that's the attitude that we take as we count down the last days of the counting of the Omer, which leads us to 49 days into the 50th day, that's given from above. That's not something you can achieve directly. But when you build a 40, you can't have 50 without 49. So the 49, we make our effort is the keli. We refine ourselves. All the midas from chesed shebe chesed through malchus shev malchus. And then you become this receptacle, container to channel the 50th the Shad Hanun, the 50th gate of Bina, which connects to Chachma, as Chassidus and Kabbalah explain. So that's one of the lessons from Shavuos and from Bamidbar. 
being that next week there will not be a program because it's Yom Tif. So this is, see this as a pre-Shavuah's discussion, but above all, Chassidus applied of how we empty ourselves in order to receive something far, far greater. A full cup cannot be uh, filled. That's the Yisod on the foundation of Homat and Tera, Nasav and Nishma, and therefore they can receive the greatest. So the emptier you are, the more you receive. Okay, with that, let me just refer you to other episodes where I've spoken about this. Shavuos Bamidbar, episode 68, 118, 164, and 213. And this is a good opportunity to announce the new website, which I've already mentioned a few times, chassidusapply.com, completely dedicated to these episodes, to these topics, to the archives of previous episodes, to a place where you can ask your questions, and many, many more resources. Check it out. Including, of course, the essays, this year and the previous year's essays in the My Life, the annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. And that's where you can find these episodes. When you go to the YouTube version, you'll see the timestamps. You can actually go to the exact space, the exact topic, the exact time where that topic has been talked about, is being talked about. Okay. So a question came in, which of course connects to Shavuos. Why do we eat dairy on Shavuos? So you know there's the custom to have a dairy meal. Some have the dairy meal and then an hour or an hour and a half later based on different minhagim and halachas of separating between dairy and meat. Obviously, the other way around, it's six hours. But from dairy to meat, so they have another meal. A different custom, some people eat only the dairy meal, one meal. So the question, of course, is why? Hello. What is the reason why we eat milk on Shavuos according to the Rebbe? I heard many reasons, and I also heard the Rebbe said, it's not because the Jewish people didn't have kosher pots when they received the Torah, because Hashem would not give them a Torah that tells them to eat meat on Shabbos and Yom Tif, and they wouldn't be able to fulfill it. Is that true? Also, what can we learn from milk versus meat in serving Hashem? I look forward to sharing what you have to say with my family and community. Thanks. P.S. If you can quote sources, that would be great. Okay. So firstly, let's just put things into context. Always make things very important to be precise. What did the Rebbe say? The reason, according to the Rebbe, the Rebbe is a Tater person. And that means whatever he says comes from Tater. The Rebbe did not... God forbid, innovate the custom of eating dairy on Shavuos. It's brought in Svarim, goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, if not longer, to the point that many say that it was during Matan Tater that they eaten the first meal they ate after Matan Tater was dairy, we'll soon discuss. So this is not according to the Rebbe, it's according to Chazal. And the Rebbe cites it and discusses and does analyze it. It was the year Tav Shalom Advov. Pasha Nose, the Shabbos after Shavuos, where the Rebbe actually spoke about it at length, and it's already printed today in Chelik Yud Ches, in the Sicha Matis Mase. Because there it talks about Hagolas Kalim, meaning koshering container, Kalim vessels, when, when they either new, either new vessels or vessels that were purchased or were before not kosher ones. So he talks about that in Chelik Yud Ches, so there's a Mara Malkama source, and there there are sites several other sources regarding this topic of eating dairy. Generally speaking, there are many, many places. You go to Taimi Amenogim, I think there's 30, 40 reasons, if I recall. Maybe less, but it's a, it's a large number. The four main reasons given by, in, uh, usually are cited, is number one, because there's a special carbon brought on Shavuos called Shteha Lechem, meaning two loaves, some double loaf. So double loaf, like we know, like Shabbos, the loaves of bread correspond to, to the meals, the two loaves, 
that were given on Shabbos, Friday and Shabbos, Lechem Mishnah, that's a Pesach and B'Shalach, a double portion, that's why that was given from the Lechem and Hashemayim, the Man, the bread from heaven. That's why we have two meals. The third meal is another reason. Also connecting to the Man, but, but it's another discussion. So the Shtei HaLechem, Ashvuas, corresponding to that, we have two meals, specifically two meals, one dairy, one meat. According to that reason, it doesn't explain why it's, why it's dairy. It just says two meals. There's a second reason given, and this is probably the most popular one, that because the Eden before Matan Tera were in the gather of non-Jews, that's why Matan Tera was a gear. It was a conversion in every possible halachic way. As a matter of fact, many of the laws, most of the laws of conversion that we learn today, when a human being wants to convert from non-Jew to Jew, is derived from the laws and the events that happen around Matan Tera. The three things, Kabbalah's mitzvahs, tefillah, and brismillah. Tefillah meaning tefillah with a base, immersion in a mikveh. <clears throat> so therefore, the, the vessels that they had the day before Mount Teda, right up to Mount Teda, according to Allah, is not kosher. Because they were not, they didn't need kosher vessels. Even if they fulfilled some of the laws, which we'll mention in a moment. Nevertheless, it needed to go through a tefillah, a a um, immersion. You have to be table the kalim, agolas kalim, all the different rules necessary. So therefore, the first meal after after matan what would they eat? So they ate dairy. The Rebbe in that sicha I, I cited asked the question, and why? And dairy doesn't need vessels. The dairy also needs kosher vessels, but dairy is not dependent on shechita. Shechita was not done beforehand, and therefore meat was not kosher meat. Dairy is not dependent on, on uh, slaughtering. The fact, what about dairy and meat? So the Rebbe says, the Rebbe's Chidush, the Rebbe says, Yashleimer can say that they would not have eaten meat and milk beforehand because the Jews did fulfill many of the laws beforehand. The law of Shechita, even if they fulfilled it, but still it's a Shechita, not of a Jewish Shechita. It still begs the question, why did God set it up? Like, like you write, why God set it up in that way that they should have that situation. So you have to say there must be something about dairy. Comes reason number three, that dairy and cholov, teres compared to cholov. And there's gematris and so on. So, so we know that there's cholov advash, there's bread, there's milk and honey. And we know there's other levels we call shemen and yayin, oil and, and wine. But one expression that's used a number of places that teres compared to cholov. Just like milk from the youngest age sustains a child, its mother's milk, so Tayla is the sustenance of it. And that's why to commemorate that, we eat Cholov. And finally, the fourth reason given is to distinguish us from the angels. It's a shvach. The angels, of course, complain to Hashem. Why are you giving the Tayla to the Eid? It's Give it to us. There's a whole sikh, another beautiful sikh from the Rebbe Shvur sikh, also in volume 18, in Kutis Sikhas, like the din of Bar Metzvah. Angels were in heaven. The Tater was coming from heaven. When, you, when, when a property is being sold, the first person who has priority choice, the first choice of rejection is the neighbor. The Malachim had a very good taina. We're neighbors. We're in heaven. So why are you giving to the, to the Jews who are down on earth? A beautiful sikha from Tavshin Chai, Tavshin Yitas, I think, uh, one of the two. And the Rebbe explains it. So the angels came with a complaint. 
Why are you giving Hamdegnuza to the, 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 the inferior human beings? It's a whole story in Gemara and Shabbos. How Hashem tells Moshe, you go respond. But one of the ways to demonstrate, Moshe says that let's open the Torah. He was a good advocate holding on to the throne of God. He says, let's look in the Torah. What does it say there? I am the God that took you out of Egypt. Were you ever in Egypt? He has the angels. It says, honor your parents. Do you have parents? Do not murder. Do not steal. Do you have even a temptation to do so? So the Torah was given for us. And one of the things that says is that they got, when the Malachim, when they visited Avram Avinu, they ate Basar B'cholov. They ate meat and milk mixed together. He served them. Chadl with chema, with butter and, and tongue. And his question is how he could have done it, but that's not relevant right here. So one of the things we eat dairy is to show the Shvachim Shal Yisrael. That they always stuck the dairy. They did not mix dairy and meat. But as I said, all these reasons are technical reasons and legitimate ones. There must be something deeper. And the answer is in the, in the reason I mentioned Teda is compared to Cholov. Chassidus Kabbalah explains Cholov and Basar. Why don't you mix the two? Cholov comes from an animal. The reason is because Cholov is Chesed and meat is Gvura. Fascinating Rishima from the Rebbe's father on this. The Rebbe explained it a number of times. Where you see that sometimes you do mix Chesed and Gvura. Teferis. Klayim, we don't mix, but the, the, the Big Day Kohuna had Klayim. Linen and wool. Same thing with the Klay, Klay Soda, Klay, Klay Kerem. Meaning that you don't mix certain species because Chesed and Gvura should not be, it's Mavalba the Yetzis. In the words of the Bechai and other commentaries, you miss your, there's a structure God created and when you mix Chesed and Gvura not in the right way, you'll be Mavalba, you're disturbing the whole structure. So, Teireh, of course, has both Chesed and Gvura. Eish Dos It's a fire. The Teireh is a fire compared to Eish. But it's also compared to Chesed. Like water, Mayim. And also to Cholov, which flows like water. When Mat and Teireh happened, it was a joining of both. There was fire and there was Cholov. But the focus always has to be Yemin Mekareves Vesmel Deche. The prominent and dominant gene, so to speak, the dominant force should be chesed. So even though Teira has fire, and the Teira has gvura, and has laws that prohibit things, but above all, the cholov, sustenance, the flow, Eretz Zovis cholov, and cholov therefore represents the chesed of Teira, like he says in Tanya, brought from Medrash, from Gemara and Medrash, Gemara and Medrash, that Teira is compared to Mayim, just as Mayim Yerdim, Mayim descends from the top down, and fills every crevice, so I think the same thing, Teda comes from heaven down, all the way down, and fills every part of our lives. And therefore, symbolic of that is eating a dairy meal, usually on Yontif or Shabbos, a meat meal. The focus not on Gvura, but on Chesed. Okay. Good. Let's move on to the next question. The next question is... Now that, that a major, now that most of the world's Jews live in Israel, should the focus shift from a diaspora-centric Judaism to an Israel-centric Judaism? Esteemed Mashpir Rabbi Jacobson. Now that the majority of the world's Jews live in Israel, it seems to me that the dynamic has shifted from a Bovel-centric Judaism to an Israel-centric Judaism. 
Meaning, of course, when most Jews lived in outside of Eretz Yisrael, which is after Churm Bayis Sheni, even after Churm Bayis Rishon, but Churm, they went back, many went back to the Eretz Yisrael, Israel, after, for the second temple. But afterwards, we were expelled and exiled. So, of course, life was built, Ten Liyavnev was built around sprinkling strong Jewish communities wherever Jews would go. But now, first time in history, the last few years, actually, where the majority and bulk of the population, of the Jewish population, is in Israel. So the question, of course, is, does it shift anything? Even the rabbinic halachic world now seems to take its cue from Israeli rabbonim, more than ever, and the previous hub of halachic decision in New York seems to be taking the position of second fiddle. If I'm not mistaken, there are even halachas that govern what to do in times when the majority of the world's Jews live in Israel. What is the Chabad approach to this changing dynamic? At what point does it make sense for non-official shluchim to start thinking of moving to Israel? So this needs to be clarified in a number of ways. First of all, even when all the Eden, there was always some remnant of Eden in Israel, just for the record, but even when all, almost all, were, gone, were not living there, in the physical sense, not, in the, in, not only in the spiritual sense, even then we always dive in towards that Yisrael. We never forgot Israel. To say that it became diaspora-centric or bubble-centric, we'll talk about that in a moment. But we always dive in towards Yisrael. That never changed. Because then we say, and our hope, was to return to Zion, to return to Israel. That never left us. Not once did it leave us. Our prayers are filled with the message. So that's the most important thing to say, that we always remained Israel-centric. It always remained the center, the place where tefillahs elevate. When we make Kiddush Levona, and we announce the Meilad Levona, we don't announce the new, the new year, the new moon, based on wherever we are. It's based on where Israel is the new moon. And so many other examples that keep us focused on Eretz Yisrael being the center of the Jewish universe. In many ways, the entire universe. Zehashar l'Hashem. Zehashar l'Hashemayim. This is the gate to heaven, as Yaakov Avinu said, when he fell asleep in Haramidiyah. So besides the aspiration, we actually do physical things toward that. Now, of course, Hashem decides when a Jew can and cannot go, especially many years over the Golas. Nishmet and Zerotz are not with our will that we leave, and not with our will will we return. God runs the show and leads the footsteps of a human being. So I wanted to first state that. Now, obviously, when Jews moved, wherever they moved, it became the center of their lives physically. That's where they built a base medish and a base knesses. Base Rabbeinu Shebebovel is basically referring to the base Rabbeinu Shebebovel because that became the center focal point where the Jews went to to learn by Rebbe. And the same thing in each city, respective city. But still, that never took away from the focus of Eretz Yisrael. You could say, in is that replaced to some extent, so we should have a vibrant place of Yiddishkeit. With a hope, as the Gemara says in Megillah at the end, Asida, but the Knesias, all the Beis Medrash, and all the Bata Knesias, will return, all the Bata Medrashim will return to Eretz Yisrael. So now, in the in language of Chesidus, we build a Migdash Ma'at, a mini sanctuary. A Mahdo Eretz Yisrael. You take that douche and try to make it in each place in the world, transform it from the bottom up. 
with a goal that will all be lead us back to Eretz Yisrael, and I see that Eretz Yisrael and Israel will in the future spread to all the lands, and see the Yerushalayim, and Yerushalayim will spread to all of Israel. So the Gedush of Israel always remains higher, even when we transform the world. And then there's Esa Gedushas, the ten levels of holiness in Israel, in Yerushalayim, in Yerushalayim, the old city, all the way to the Harabais, in the base of Mikdash, all the way to Kedush Kadosh. So essentially you can say the process is what we are charged to turn every corner of this earth into a holy place. But still Israel has its unique elements in halacha as well, through misamaisis, things that are only applicable there. And things are only applicable when all the idn will return there. Or some say rave, minion, the gabi yevil and other things. And Mashiach comes and will gather all the idn back there to Israel. As I'm not going to go into now where we stand halachically regarding the fact that most of the Jews are there. But remember, still Golos. And Mepnei Galinu, Mepnei Chateinu Galinu Matzeinu refers also to the Jews in Israel. They also say that. Because it's not just geographic, as I mentioned, it's also spiritual. You can be there and not be there. Not be on that level. So, yes, our attitude is Israel stands the center of the Rebbe, who never went there to Israel. But you look at the Sikhs, talked always about Israel. His whole heart and mind was there. He knew about it. And, he, and many of the campaigns that have initiated were all around Eretz Yisrael and the wars, the attacks, and of course the positive things. And yet there comes a time, like a Meshur Rabbeinu didn't go into Eretz Yisrael, there comes a time when he'll go. As far as making Aliyah, people going there, that's already an individual decision. As the Rebbe's approach was generally, if you were dependent upon, in a Meshur, an organization outside of Israel, you can't just let go of your responsibility. If, however, you're not, and maybe there is an option. That has to be discussed with your mashpia, with your rov, case by case. We see some of the greatest Eden throughout history, the G'dayli Yisrael, that made their way to Yisrael, the end of their lives. The end. Because they had their shlichas, the Ramban, Shalom, and many others, including, of course, the Arizal, and the people who lived in Tzvast during that time. So I think that answers the question. As far as Chabad approach, as I just said, the Rebbe's approach is if you have a shlichus, you have to do your shlichus. And your shlichus is not disconnected. It's not instead of Eretz Yisrael. Machdo Eretz Yisrael, the Tzemach Tzadik told us, Chosid. Take, make this place where you are as much, as much as possible, make it into a holy and sacred place. That's your shlichus. As far as, as I said, case by case, every person in their given situation. But we don't have the authority to go ahead and start make a movement, everybody should move to Eretz Yisrael. First of all, everybody has to figure that out on their own. In general, as I said, that's what we're all hoping for. We cannot wait. The day comes, Mashiach comes, and we will all immediately go to Eretz Yisrael. Okay. Next question. Yetzir Tev. From my limited knowledge of Chazal and Chassidus, I noticed that the Yetzir Hara gets a lot, air t- gets a lot of airtime. We learn many stories and parables about the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. But seemingly, none of these things about the Yetzirah, the good inclination. Why is this? Am I missing these sources? If so, why are they not quote-unquote popular or well-known? If not, why do we know so little about the Yetzirah? So honestly, I'm not sure whether, I give, whether you're correct. It could be that, yes, you were more focused or it was more told to you. 
But the Torah speaks about both. And many places does compare the two. Above all, since we're talking Chassidus applied, open up Atanya. Does he speak more about the Yetzirah or more about the Yetzirah in the language, the Nefeshalik Bamis or the Nefeshalikis? I didn't count the pages, but I would say both get a lot of airtime, so to speak, quote unquote. So bottom, the, the truth is they're both talked about. It could be more in the shit of Musar and more in the negative fear-based education. We're told more about the Yetzirah and you have to prevent and the, and, and the, and the punishments and uh, the deterrence. Whereas Chassidus talks about how great the person is. To look at godless hakel, not just shiftless adam, not just the lowliness of a person. So it could be the Yetzirah is more, I would say, dramatic and more colorful because you talk about all its, the, the, the evil temptation and all its how it tries to seduce us and so on. Nefeshul Kiss may not be as, uh, as hip, as fashionable, so to speak. I mean that, obviously, sarcastically. And it's like a little more boring. But in truth, the Nefeshul Kiss, the Yetzir Tev, by the way, the Yetzir Tev is the midness of the Nefeshul Kiss. Yetzir is the midness of the Nefeshul Abame. So Nefesh is all ten faculties, as we learn in Tanya intellectual faculties and emotional ones. Even in animals, so there's intellectual faculties. They're controlled by your impulses and instincts. So that's just as an aside. And it's talked about, as a matter of fact, the taka starts with the first nefesh abamis because that enters first to give a fighting chance. But then nefesh Hashem is Bisrael, Pedic Beis. And it goes on and on, talk about both of them. And that there's a battle. So I wouldn't necessarily categorize one more than the other. It could be some of us seem to pay more attention or feel there's more about the Yetzirah or maybe there is, it is talked about more in schools and so on. But based on Tanya and based on so many places of Chassidus, we should be teaching our children about the Nefesh Kis, how great they can become, their potential, the divine potential that each person has. <clears throat> and that is the best, the best incentive. The best defense is offense. At times, you do have to speak and you speak about the, the Yetzirah. But I would not say that it necessarily should get more airtime and more focus. Now, given situations, case by case, obviously you look at each case, different people, where their matzav is, where their status is, and what they need to be able to grow. Okay. Next question. Sensitivity to others. Should we be more sensitive to older singles when we bless them to find a shidduch? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. My question for you today is as follows. Do you think the minig custom to wish older singles by simchis, weddings, l'chaims, etc. in mitzvah shem badir, meaning with God's help by you, loosely translated, God willing, soon by you, do you think this custom should be discontinued? Here is why I think this custom should be discontinued. Firstly, many older singles don't go to weddings, l'chaims anymore. They attend simchas only of close friends and immediate family. I should really speak only for myself, but I think this can be true for others as well. I also understand where the well-wishers are coming from. Their intention is not to hurt the recipient of their blessing. Rather, since Jews are gameli chasodin, meaning kind and compassionate, giving, naturally inclined to do loving kindness with others. So when they see another Jew hurting, 
their natural response is to bless them so they shall hurt no more. However, with all the good intentions, these kind of blessings just intensifies the pain of the older single who is trying to enjoy a simcha already with a chip on their shoulder. In conclusion, I would like to share a Torah thought with you and your listeners. I was recently learning chapter 41 of Tehillim, Psalms, where the psalmist opens up with Ashrei Maskil Keldol. Praised is the one who puts his mind to the weak. The commentaries explain that the word dull, weak, refers to either, it refers either to the impoverished or to the ill. The commentaries probe further, why does the psalmist use the word maskil? Intellect in correlation with kindness, he should have used words like anesin lev dull. give his heart, why mind? One who puts his heart to the weak. The commentaries explain further that in order to do kindness with another, it has to be done right. We have to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, so to speak. When we give charity to a poor person, we, not, we have to give it wisely so that he shouldn't feel embarrassed. And when we visit the sick, we should convey to them a message of hope and comfort and inquire what their needs are. Basically, to be successful at being kind, you have to use your brains and be in turn and be in tuned to another. I hope you can discuss these topics at Slach Mashiach now. So firstly, in general topic about singles, we spoke about it in episodes 1499-120. Regarding sensitivity, absolutely. Absolutely. I am not here going to tell people to make a gzeda, a decree, that you can't tell to someone a mitzvah shem by you. I don't think that should be done. I do think, however, everyone should stop being robotic and mechanical and start thinking about the other person and maybe give them a blessing in a very discreet and beautiful way that does not hurt someone's feelings, how much you care. So there's no question we should all be more sensitive, especially a person who has that called chip on the shoulder or has a sense that I'm, something's the matter, I'm not all married yet and people looking at me and so on. We have to be extra sensitive. So this isn't about just pushing people, it's being careful who you speak to, when you speak and how you speak. So I couldn't agree more to the sensitivity at the same time, we don't necessarily have to walk on eggshells. Every person has their challenge, and many people are very open about it. So I don't think we have to do that either. We're not here to hurt. We're not here to exaggerate or patronize. We're here to be honest. And there's nothing wrong to be able to say, yes, I will pick up a phone, I will talk to someone, I'll look around, and so on. Everyone has to make that decision. So thank you for that, and I appreciate it. Okay, next question. Women voting. Okay. According to the Teda, are women permitted to vote? Whenever elections were held in Crown Heights, citing halacha, women were not allowed to vote. Does halacha allow women to vote in governmental elections? Did the Rebbe's wife, Rebbe Tzachayimushka, vote? Do these voting, though those voting have to listen to their parents about who to vote for if their parents have a strong preference? Or does a woman have to listen to her husband's preference? Okay. So, as always, I don't paskan halachas here. This is not a place for pasaks. If you want a pasak, you go to a rabbi and ask. Generally speaking, however, I'll just state a few things. Generally, the consensus in many communities that women don't vote in a religious community, let's say for a rov, or even for the heads of the community, vadakal, but they go together Couples vote, meaning families vote. That husband and wife vote together. 
And it could be the wife is the one that is suggesting the vote. The man casts it, and there's reasons for it, besides sneers, there's other reasons. We'll talk about that in a moment. However, what about government elections? So we know women's suffrage, the idea that women voting has been a big battle, that many people have um, fought, and women today are allowed to vote. Once upon a time, they were not allowed. So one could also argue that maybe when they were not allowed, in the secular world, it may have been more of a pizza to do it, so the religious world went along. But it's deeper than that. The famous so-called disagreement between the two chief rabbis before Israel became even a state in the 20s and 30s between Rav Kook and the Sephardic chief rabbi. There was a big difference of opinion about this matter. And Rav Kook was very adamant, interestingly, though in many ways he's very so-called progressive or more liberal, if you wish. But here he's very adamant that women not only cannot but should not, absolutely not, because, they, because we don't give in to the customs of the land. And he goes to a whole discussion about it. We have to stand strong and teiradik. And there's a derech. The other chief rabbi felt otherwise. And this has raged on. Some, can, some say things have changed because today there is women's suffrage. Women do vote. So maybe it's not considered such a big thing for women to vote. So again, I'm not passing that. We'll just bring both sides of it. Some go, of course, into the discussion and argument about shirara, that women should not serve as leaders, as kings. We learn this, the Gemara says it, we learn it from Midrashim and so on. And there's a whole question about the Veda. So some say, because Shirara, and that's about voting, is about voting for a leader, they, not, they, they shouldn't vote either. But some are like, what's the connection? What's the connection with you voting, with you running for office? So there's many different opinions on the matter. Overall, as I said, I'm not going to pass on the matter. I will say there are many religious people that do go to governmental elections, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level. I don't know about the Rebbe Chaim Mushke. If someone has any information, please share it. But that's different also when it comes to religious matters. It's a religious community, and then you don't want to make an extra pirza if that is the standard, that people don't vote for many reasons, either because that's how it's always been, whether it's Sneas, whether it's Shnoda, whatever it may reason be, why should we change it? You know, the idea of just change, name of change. Now, the fact you'll say women should, why women treat it second class, they're not. That's the one, two wrongs don't make a right. Meaning that if a husband treats a wife in that way, he should be reprimanded. That's not how you treat a wife. They are equals, they are equal partners. And in that, a good woman, a good man who have a bitle to each other, she understands. Just like some women change their name, women, the custom is to change their name to the husband's name. Why not the other way around? That's the meaning. Again, different reasons given for it. So a woman who's secure doesn't have a problem. So my husband's the one that's going to cast the ballot. But we spoke about it. We're together on this. The Rebbe says, Ishik Shere Eser Tzayn Ba'al. Kosher woman, appropriate woman of integrity, Eser Tzayn Ba'al can be read, fulfills her husband's will, as most people interpret. But Eser can also mean creates her husband's will. His husband's Ratzin. So it's more complicated than just one-way street. Now, each have their unique roles, and we talked about this in previous episodes. I'm not going to go into that. And God did not create inferior human beings. He gave two roles and gave physiological differences. And that's why women fit to their mishlichas and men to theirs. There's no reason to, to reverse that. There's no reason to undermine that. And yet, that still does not mean that women don't have power. They're leaders in their own right and leaders in their own way, and it's nizdik way and halachadik way. And as I said, 
regarding this this issue of of um, of uh, voting, it comes down to you have to ask your local rabbi, and if you wish, you could ask another one to get your own clarity what you should be doing if you're talking about a woman or a man for that matter. Okay. Next question. Let me just pause for a moment. Just to see, these are all questions that came in several months ago, but we're continuously catching up. So do not hesitate to send letters, to your questions at the anonymous forum at chassidusapply.com. We will get to them as I'm getting to these. If for some reason some of these are, 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 are people who wrote them don't, didn't, give, they didn't give up hope, so now you know, don't give up hope on me, and we'll address them all. So next question is about Seder Chassidus Be'iyun, which means learning Chassidus in depth. Seder as a yeshiva bachas, has an orderly stru- structure and, and, and when he studies. Should I be learning deeper my modern Chassidus, and if so, which? Hi, Rabbi Jacobs, Rabbi Simon. Thank you, for so, thank you so much for this shiurim. I'm a younger man learning for several years with Hatzlochem. I'm a young man learning for several years with success, but not too much clarity of my purpose here. But not much clarity, not too much clarity about his purpose on this world. Mm-hmm. Through your shiurim, <clears throat> through your classes, I now begin to learn Sifrei Chabad, the books of Chabad. I know the Rebbe encouraged to start by Derech Mitzvah with a book Derech Mitzvah on mitzvahs, which I would like to ask about Sifrei... I, yeah. I would like to ask about Sifrei Rashab. Being from outside, it seems less on the personal level than the first rabbis for him like Tanya and Tereir. In short, what's the say that went to start and why this Kabbalistic Maimonim that described Simpson as such big, such a big part of learning Chassidus beyond Tiskul and Mitzvahs. Okay. So, just referring to cross-referencing to episode eighty-one. Now, regarding the question, in the number of answers I've seen from the Rebbe when people ask this question, is the following: Firstly. Um, when a person, a student, asks his teacher where should he begin learning, where can be both where geographical location, but which books, which safe, tailors many different departments, so to speak. But where your heart desires. So this is a question you have to ask yourself and get your mashpia involved and ask what is something that you gravitate to, where your heart desires. Remember, Teda is a Teda Achas. The Ragged explains it. Everything is one body. It's one part of God's Teda. So how you enter can be many different ways. Some people enter through Chumash and Rashi. Some people enter through Halacha. Some through Agadita. Some through Primisa Teda. The list goes on. Some through Talmud, Halacha, and so on. They all are going to the, to the same one Teda. So you have to ask yourself what you gravitate to, what speaks to you. That's number one. That's in general a rule as far as what our person should begin learning. Especially if you're describing not having purpose, then for sure you need to be learning exactly that. The chassidus that talks about finding purpose. A good place to begin, if you read English, is Toward a Meaningful Life, my book, where I talk about that. 
And that leads, of course, into deeper understanding and deeper study of Chassidus. As far as Sifri Chabad beyond that, so the Rebbe did offer to suggest to many people to start with Derech Mitzvah Secha, which are the simpler mitzvahs, easier mitzvahs to explain, mitzvah tzitzis, Masar, and Bekosov, Binyamigdash. There's a few basics. But we also know from the Rebbe about learning some certain chapters in Tanya, and also other Maimorim from the Rebbe Rashab, or sometimes the Friedrich Rebbe. And again, there's no rule. If it's too deep, some people love it and it challenges them. If it's too light, it may, be, it may be too close to you. So you have to really figure out what works for you. So I don't have a black and white answer. I think it has to be determined on more factors than I can read into this. And this I suggest talking to people who are closer to you. But I don't decline. If you feel that you want to discuss it with me or some way send me an email, please do so. I'll be happy to assist. So, of course, these Sfifri Yisoyedim are Tanya, Tere'er, Lukut But nevertheless, there's other Svarim, there's Mamorim that are easier to understand, even though they may be deeper. There's Samarvov, Ayim Beis, Reb Marashav Mamorim. But again, it's case by case, and you must talk to your Mashbiya, because there's no way. I don't know who you are to tell you, start telling you, learn this Mamorim, that Mamorim. What do you gravitate to? What are the things that you're really interested in? The Mokim Shalibi Chafetz is big, in my view. Okay. Now with that, we're going to do some follow-up. So last week, I started with anti-Semitism. And though, as I said, I didn't necessarily agree with the approach that the writer write, but still I found it intriguing enough to address it. And as I said this week, I'm going to take one or two topics and then go through it, plow through it in the next coming weeks. So the, quite the discussion was that this fellow, whoever's writing, man or woman, has reached out to non-Jews who, who spoke anti-Semitic things to try to see, in his words, um, in constructive dialogue online with around 30 anti-Semites and continue to engage with them on, on the, in the commute in the morning and other times. So he then compiled, he says, here's a compilation of their complaints and effective ways of addressing the issues, complaints of anti-Semites. But before I go there, I mentioned, and I mentioned again, that the Rebbe, of course, emphasized the Hilchas Malachim, Sefei Ches, and the Rambam, where he talks about mitzvah. It's a mitzvah on every Jew, just like it is to do Torah, to, yeah, 613 mitzvahs, to do the mitzvahs that are in, in Yaakov, to influence, inspire, compel in some way. Of course, it means always in a positive way. The non-Jews to do their mitzvahs. And because it was given at Sinai. So there's very clear a directive from the Rebbe in this regard. And that is the best solution, of course, to any form of anti-Semitism. But yet, since a person wrote, I'm going to read some of his suggestions. And I'll see, we'll see where it goes. I would like to begin by discussing black anti-Semitism in New York City, followed by white anti-Semitism outside New York City. In my observation, black anti-Semitism in New York City is a result of feeling disrespected and disregarded. One woman who works in a firm office and posts very anti-Semitic comments online told me that when clients come in, they greet the Jewish employees and ignore her as, she does, as if she doesn't exist. 
The obvious answer is don't ignore people. Say good morning, good afternoon, or nod with a smile. Not just in offices, but also to neighbors, cashiers, etc. Show respect, not by cutting lines, if you, even if you accidentally bump into someone. I'm sorry, if you accidentally bump into someone, especially on the team, on the train, especially on the train, say, excuse me. Give a, be considerate and don't let do, store doors or subway exits, gates, slam in the face of the other person behind you. Given that, give, give it that extra push. If you're a landlord, fulfill all your obligations to your tenants. We must break this vicious cycle and it has to begin with us. Look for opportunities to make a kiddush. Someone, someone sneezed, offer them a, a, a tissue. Say thank you to, to whom and whenever possible. Last but not least, don't swagger when you're weak. Swaggering inflames anti-Semitism. Even the Nevi'im spoke about this, about, this, about this. Walk, walk with a combination of self-respect and bittel. I'm sorry, Nevi'im spoke. Walk with a combination of self-respect and bittel. Don't underestimate the power of all these things have to save lives. The above applies in regard to white Gentiles as well. Okay. I'm going to stop here with this because there's more that he writes, but fine, thank you for that. And of course, I welcome all your comments and rebuttals and questions and so on. I want to say one more thing which I neglected to mention about my Morich Siddis. When you learn deep by Morich Siddis, and truth is all Siddis has depth to it, but souls that are obviously deeper. There's a few things that Chassidim have always said, and Rabbeim as well. There's something about, it's Bezachich the Chemer. The etzimine of learning Teirah, especially Primsat Teirah, refines the crassness, refines the materialism and the selfish nature of every human being. That's number one. When you learn deep things and you exert your mind according to Chassidus, even if you don't fully understand it, it has a very positive impact. But still, you have to be realistic and not be self-delusional. It's important to talk to people who know you, who've studied with you, so you can push the boundaries. And you'd be surprised. You may be learning something that you think is beginner. Don't be afraid of that word. Sometimes the beginner can be even better than the advanced. I've had this experience a number of times. So don't be disturbed. If it's a journey. It's an exhilarating journey, and I hope that everybody finds their powerful path. Okay, let's go now to, where were we? Um, I did the, 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 the... We're going to go to another follow-up about the Zohar. So I've got quite a number of comments. Um, and I want to clarify some things I said, be more precise. So first of all, all the authorities that we trust declare very clearly that, but that, and, and reject any, any aspersions thrown on the question who the author of the Zer is. That even though the Zer may have evolved and different people wrote different sections, but it's based on Tedus of Rajbi, and the people who later saw the manuscripts of the Zayar immediately knew that because they were aware, they were insiders, as we discussed last week at length. 
and yet we find it's royal, it's it's royal royal controversy, because the story of Moshe de Leon, what did he say? What did he not say? So I wanted to just correct and a little embellish a little more. I quoted the Shem Agdalen, even though I did not say his name, and I, what I did was I did and, and, and the Shem Agdalen. Let me read inside what he says. Shem Agdalen is from the Chida. So he is a complete Basamcha that we can rely on. And he says the following about the Zayah. Chaim Yesuf David Azulai. He says that I saw written from the Rav, Rav Avram, Rav Ingu, not sure, who actually writes the following. That the Reish HaMukabalim and the Rishayim, we're talking about now, time of Tanoim, was Abin Echun Ben Akona. Who he compiled, he composed Sefer Aboyer. And then came Rajbi, who did the Sefer, Sefer Azair, and he joined together with different, uh, different, different sections. So there was a whole corpus of the Zoya. And here's what happened next. But then when Rajbi passed away, and he says, the same thing in Rabbi Lozer, and the whole generation, they lost Chachmas HaKabal, they lost it. Until God led the way, and what happened was, there was a king in Malchim Mizrach, that means usually an Arab king, from the eastern part of the world, who said they should dig for business purposes. They were digging somewhere, an excavation, and there they found an Oranechot, a chest, a, uh, a vault. With Haranit, the Sefer Azayar. And they sent it to the Malke Eden, to Chachme Eden, the wise ones from the Western world, Eden. And they didn't know and didn't understand. And then they sent to the Jews in general. And when they saw the book, the Jews, the scholars clearly, they said to him that this Sefer was done by a great Chacham, by Chacham Echod. And it's very deep, and we don't understand it. So the king said, is there no Jew on earth that understands this book? Being that the Jews are then at the time, he says, so they said, yes, in the Medina of what's called here, Tultilia. Tulitila, Toledo, in Toledo, Spain. So the king sent these manuscripts to those people. And when the Chachme of Toledo saw it, they were very, they rejoiced with great joy. And they sent the king many gifts. And from there was revealed again, Mispasim was publicized, Kabbalah Li Yisrael. He says that's what he, he found. He says another Sefer, Mitzarif Lachachmi, writes that he heard from Chachme Emes, from Agide Emes, that the year Shinpei, Shinpei would be. What year would be in Shinpei? 
um, 5380, so that would be 1720. Then the year 1720, listen to this, this is another interesting detail. When the Spanish conquis- con- conquistadors, conquistadors pillaged Heidelberg, they took with them several thousand books, among them holy books on parchment, including the Zer. And that's where it got out. Then he goes on to talk about those that, that the detractors and says, even those that say the Zer is not a tribute to Rashbi, he says he's Melamed because they saw how the Zer is being misused by some, so they wanted to, so, so to speak, disassociate it from them. But they didn't mean to say that Zer is not coming from Rashbi. So I misspoke when I said that they were found in two caves, in Cremuna and in Mantoba. That's what I wanted to say, and I should have said clearly, they were found in these different descriptions that Chidah gives, but there were two different versions. And in Mantoba they printed one version. In Mantoba they printed it. The first version was printed. The Zayar first print was in uh, 5318, Shin Yutches, equivalent to the year 1658. That from there was later printed in Constantinople, which is called Fuskushta, in 5496, 1736. And simultaneously in the same year, Tov Shin Yutches, if 1658 in those years, was printed a second, Zayr Godel. It's called the Zayr Godel because it's bigger, physically bigger, bigger size. And from there it was later printed in Lublin in 1723 and 24. So I misspoke when I said that it was discovered in the caves in these places. No, that's where they were published in each place. But the two different respective manuscripts were, were found. One is Zayr Godel and one is the regular Zayr, the one that we use. Now, there's a longer history to it. Let me just give you a few sources. The history to it goes like this. Um, you can find more about this. Rabbi Menachem Kasher wrote a very powerful essay about this in Sinai a number of many years ago. I'm just looking if I have a source to give you. Um, I don't really have one. The Radal, Rabbi David Luria, wrote a sefer called Kadmus Hazayar. The Seir's so-called, its originality from the earlier generations. And then there's an excellent series of articles, Authenticity of the Zayar, online, you can look it up, by Rabbi Moshe Miller. They bring all those that decided and felt the Zayar was not from Rajbi and refute it in a very powerful way. So really the record should be clear that it comes from Rajbi. This doesn't mean everything was written then. Things were added like in Tehidah Shabbat Things could be added. But it originates from that time and it was known. And those that knew Kabbalah were able to recognize when these manuscripts being, began being discovered. Okay. One more thing, one more follow-up, which is Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students. Hello, Rabbi. I'd just like to comment on your answer in the most, your most recent broadcast, 362, last week, to the question if Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students is rounded or an actual number. So here's what this fellow writes. Writes like this. In Lukut Esichas, volume 32, pages 149 to 153, the Rebbe states that Rabbi Akiva students received the punishment for their sin upon reaching the number of 24,000. Seemingly, then, this implies that there was, for certain, at least 24,000 students. I'm not sure why we need that. I think it's clear from the Gemara. It is worth noting that in footnote 24 there in Lukut Esichas, the Rebbe quotes contrasting versions. Bereshish Rabbah, 
And Kehelis Rabbah say 12,000 students. Tanchumah says 300. Nedarim says 24,000 pairs, meaning 48,000 students. Yours truly. Okay, there are different versions, and I think it complements a bit of what we spoke about. So thank you for that. Let me see, what else do we have? So now, we're going to go to the Chassidus question. Apropos to our time, what does Chassidus contribute to the understanding of Matan Teda? So I'll point out a few key things. We all know Matan Teda, of course, was a, a, an event for Klal Yisrael. All the Eden were there. So it's long before Chassidus came around. Matan Teda was an event that changed everything. In the words of the Rambam, Matan Teda established a name of Eloizor, the Meseda of Teda, given everybody saw it. And this would be the foundation of our Teda, of our mandate. There are many, many Chazal and Medrashim say what happened to Matan Teda. The Jews became a nation. They became a Tzuvah Ve'esa. Now they're commanded to um, fulfill. And other things that Matan Teda accomplished. You have Midrashim, you have stories, you have parables, especially Masech the Shabbos. The, the, the third month, the, the nation of three received the Teda of three. What fundamentally changed, we say in Medrash, that at the time there was no echo, the birds did not chirp, it was quiet. And when the non-Jews came running to Kedach and, he, and they said, what's going on? He said, Hashem is la'ame yite. Hashem yivarech is Hashem is giving his strength, his power to his nation. He's blessing them with peace. And I can go on and on. What Chassidus adds, Primus Ateva adds, is a dimension that takes it to a completely different level. You can learn it very technically almost. Matan Teda, I mentioned before, Jews became converts. Matan Teda, they became officially mitzvah v'esa. They're no longer children. This is like their bar mitzvah. Now they are v'chuyiv mitzvahs. You could say this is when it became a formal nation. Teda is now incumbent on each one. Not like before Matan Teda, which ain't a mitzvah you weren't, you didn't have to. And there are logic implications. There are many, many articles and essays and populim written about what Matan Teda accomplished. What Primus Teda adds is a cosmic dimension and a personal dimension. Citing the Medrash, that before Matan Teda there was Exeda, Tarte Mashma. Exeda meant a decree and also a split between what? El Yenim and Tachtenim, the spiritual and the material. There was a schism that said, El Yenim Layardu Lamato, this was what's above, the spiritual spirit, should not come down below. And that was, this was with that which is below should not go up. And that was a bit like Zayda. And they joined that now, not just Shemaim, Shemaim Lashem, and Oris Adam, but you can take a physical object and transform it to Hefzah Shagdusha. Mind you, this is not just Chsidda says this. This is also language you have, especially in Achrenim, Achrenim, Achrenim. But Chsidis gives a whole different Gishmak in it. That before Matan Teda, because it was not commanded, the Ovis could achieve great things, but only to Shedesh and Ivraim. They could elevate the world and realign it to the way God wanted it to be. But transformation, to take a physical object and turn it into a holy object forever and ever, only after Matan Teda. Before Matan Teda, that's why Avram Avinu used Simna Yot Chetach He told Elazar, put your hand below my, my, uh, below my, um, uh, the, the, Gartel, basically. Blow my thighs. Because that was the only mitzvah that was a chafzah shagdusha. Milah. Gris milah. Avram would never have done that, as the Rebbe explains, because it's not tzniyazdi. But everything else was not saturated. It was a mitzvah done. The Gavra did it. 
You can take a hide from an animal and turn it into a parchment and sanctify it, and it becomes forever and ever a sefer teira, film, mezuzah. Beis Amidah stands where it is, Kedusha Lezazimim came and never leaves. This is the Chiddush Matan Matter and energy, matter and spirit became one. That the, the lowest of worlds connects to the highest. There's more that can be said about this as well. There's a sikha from the Rebbe, someone asked the Fritik Rebbe by a Suda, I think, Shvuas, what did Matan Teda, what was it, Machadish and Moshe Rabbeinu? He was already on a high level. So he says, it was Machadish that he began to appreciate Anoshim Shutim, simple people. Again, Elyenim appreciating Tachtenim. And of course, Tachtenim appreciating Elyenim. In the Derech Tzachas, you could say E equals MC squared, began by Matan Teda. MC as in matter and energy. That you can take matter and turn it into energy, divine energy. And like he says in Tanya Perek Lamed Vav, is a taste of Mashiach. Mashiach will become Begoli. Revealed how the, the world will become a Dira Betachtenim. An entire world will be a home for the divine. By Matan Tera was Me'enze, a taste of it. And the power was given to us to now achieve it. So Matan Tera is a tremendous event. There'll never be Matan Tera again. But Matan Tera still has to be continued and consummated as we continue through the years from Matan Tera till this day, continuing that work of refining and transforming the world and turning it into a Mishkin. Matan Tera wasn't a Mishkin yet. As a matter of fact, Har Sinai, once they left, we don't even know where it is, but Mshech Mishkin was built, and then the Beis Amidish became a permanent dwelling place, dwelling place for God. So Matan Tera is a transformation, a revolution. In perhaps a little more political terms, if I may, Matan Tera also gave us the principles of civilization in a formal way. And by Hashem going to the nations of the world and asking them if they wanted Tera, even though at the time they said, no, they weren't ready yet, but it was preparing the ground for a world that would be transformed by the principles of the Tayag Mitzvah and the Sheva Mitzvah Bnei Neach, given why? Because it was given at Matan Tera. Not just they do it because it's moral and ethical and, and rational, but it's given at Matan Tera. So yet Matan Tera becomes another thing, becomes the foundation of everything. That if you don't have that foundation, that you answer to higher authority, then all the other mitzvahs, Ten Commandments, can be compromised. Look what happened with the Nazis in Nazi Germany. They became God in their own right. They decided, accept certain people. So you can become your own God. There's a God above you, and that becomes part of who we are, and it has transformed the world. So in one word, Matan Teda is the greatest revolution in history, setting the stage for all transformations, even for technology today with the material world, is not just cooperating, but a seamless channel to harness technology, to harness energy, and of course, by extension, to harness divinity and spirituality. So when the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, that began by Matan Teda, as he explains in chapter 36 and then 37 of Tanya, the Einze by Matan Teda, they had a taste, they saw it. And when Shir comes, it'll be a permanent fixture revealed to all forever and ever. Okay, now, our custom is to do the essays, so let us do the essays. Three new essays from 2019, they're Hebrew. The first one, B'mkem liskasher, ule posh miskasher. Instead of connecting, let us just connect with each other. It's a play of words, but he's talking about technology. Mushke, 
she actually, Mushka Malka Dekel, age 18, Yoknayim, Yoknayim is Israel, student at the seminar based Chanetz Vas. So it talks literally about <clears throat> technology today and how it's intruding in our lives. And starts bringing from the Friedrich Rebbe and other places that we are losing our personal touch. Goes on and analyzes the modern times of why that's so. And how people connect for ulterior motives, not necessarily for the real reason. Three so-called excuses for this depersonalization. And then goes on and says, Chassidus comes and says the whole real reason for relationship is to connect. Elam chesed yibona. And goes on to explain how the whole technology and all the modern times and everything is really steps toward being able to transform personal relationships, enhance them in new and unprecedented ways. Very well done. This and all other essays can be seen at chassidusapply.com. Next one. The next essay is Dachaf Mul Dachak. Dachaf, to push instead of to be, to, to be pressured. Arya Maimon, age 21, Yaknayam, elite in Israel, student in Michlalat Shanan Haifa in Haifa. This one is, of course, about pressure and how people always feel that pressure is not a good thing. Talking about, however, healthy pressure versus unhealthy pressure. That's the theme of this essay. And discusses, analyzes, dissects the roots of pressure, how it affects our lives. And then how the Alter Rebbe introduces his take on it. In Tanya, of course. How Amuna plays a tremendous role because it causes the antidote to counter fear. And then finally, the conclusion of how to translate it all into a practical model in our lives. Very, very good essay. Very well annotated as well. And finally, essay number three. When you rebuke someone, heart to heart, that succeeds. Hannah Esther Cohen, age 18, Ocean City, Maryland. She is a student in the seminar based Hannah Tzvat. And the title says it all. The idea of being able to, yes, help someone grow, but it's coming from your heart as opposed to from your mind. Not just preaching and condescension. Okay. And goes on to talk about real case scenarios and how Siddhis adds that element of Milela Lev, heart to heart. Yeah, very well done essay as well. Just looking if I can sum up. Goes into specifics of different types of rebuke, healthy and unhealthy, and even by the rabbeim, how they minimized it. And then, even when there needs to be some rebuke, how to do that in a loving and kind way. Very good contribution to this whole dialogue. Excellent. So, with that, we conclude this week's episode, the pre episode of My Life Citizen Applied, episode 263.
And uh, I want to wish everyone the words of the Friedrich Rebbe. The Rebbe explains what that means, both besimcha with joy and primius internal. And um, it should be makabal teter every year anew, in a new way, but most importantly, to bring it down into action. As I mentioned, there will not be a program next week because of Shavuos, so the next program will be in two weeks from now. This has been my life, Chassidus Applied, Simon Jacobson, Agutin Yontif, Agutin Tamid, Simcha Kabbalah Sateira, Besimcha, Uwe Thank you.